Paul, thank you to the Center Street Brass for that, and uh, thank you all. Uh, it's good to give our tithes and offerings to God, uh, those of us who come up and give in person, and uh, many who give online, who give uh, through e-transfer, or who give uh, to God and to the people God loves uh, through many other different places and means. <clears throat> I talked with somebody this morning, and I won't say who it was, um, and uh, <clears throat> I said, I'm preaching on money and tithing this morning, and they said, uh-oh. Um, maybe that's your reaction as well when the minister gets ready to talk about money. I've heard those kinds of sermons before, and I this week wrote one of those kinds of sermons. God's, law, God's will for our money. We know what the Bible says, just do it. That's not the gospel, is it? The gospel isn't that God just tells us what to do and then we figure out a way to do it. The gospel is far greater than that. It's about God's deep love for his people, that while we were dead in our sins, he gave us everything. So I want to invite you just to close your eyes, bow your head a moment, join me in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on uh, the reading and proclamation of his word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Open our ears to hear the words that you are always saying to us, the message your spirit always has for us. You're always speaking, always showing, always leading. Even in this next few moments, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the confidence to follow just what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue this sermon series, all the things God cares about, I want us to consider God's priority for our money. And I want to especially focus on tithing this morning as a way for us to order God's priority for our money. Our church's vision, our vision statement is reaching out, drawing in, and creating a mosaic community. This means we want to welcome all people into God's family, just the way you are. Membership in God's church and in God's community is not defined by becoming like someone else. Not someone else's culture, not someone else's gender norms, not someone else's financial situation, their abilities, or their preferences. Belonging to God and God's church is about becoming more like God. And so everyone is welcome to come as you are, and more and more to check how your life aligns to God's will and God's desires. So this morning, as we come to our text, and we're going to read a couple different scripture passages as we go through our time together, I wonder how we do that in dramatically different financial situations. Money is a great tool that we can leverage to do a lot with. But in every human society, and even just compare any two people, there are always inequalities. In Canada today, it's hard to find a better measure for inequality than financial inequality between people. Those who have a lot of money, who are rich, we like to be told exactly what the expectation is. And then we can confidently choose whether we want to meet that or not. On the other hand, those of us who have little money, those of us who are struggling financially and in other ways, we might prefer a quick word about money so that we can move on without staying too long in the guilt or discomfort we often feel when this topic comes up. 
Or maybe we want to be given a pass, just no expectation. But consider that it's possible for a rich person to give 10% of her income to the church or somewhere else and not to care about God at all. It's possible to give out of obligation, to give for personal tax benefit. Such a person might be able to give 20 or 30 or even 40% of her income and still live comfortably. Yet if she doesn't have love for God, the Apostle Paul says, she gains nothing, nothing from a lasting kingdom of God perspective. On the other hand, it's also possible for a person to use every cent of his income and still not have enough for rent, for groceries, and to support his family. This person might need to rely on a food bank, on the generosity of others, or may be accumulating more and more debt each week despite his best efforts and multiple jobs. If there's room in God's church for all people, then what is God's priority for the people at those extreme ends and everyone in between? We're going to start this morning by reading Genesis chapter 4. This is the first story uh, in the Bible after humanity's fall into sin. And uh, Genesis tells us Adam, Adam, the Hebrew says Adam knew his wife Eve. Adam made love to his wife, sounds so 1990s. Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of the time, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, God did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you, not, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And so while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what, you have done, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from, this, from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So far, the reading of God's word. This story, this is the first story, as I said, after the story of the fall and sin entering the world. And this first story is a story that starts with tithing or first fruits. And it immediately shows us God's priority for the hearts of his people. It shows us in this story two brothers and their different attitudes to God. Before money was even a thing, Cain gives God a general gift but Abel gives God the first and the best of what he has. God blesses Abel, but not Cain. 
And so Cain's anger spirals out of control and he kills his brother. Cain kills his brother because he wants God's blessings and God's reward more than Cain loves God. Cain kills Abel because he doesn't want his brother to have more of God's blessings than he has. This is not just a story of history. It's also a model for all that will follow. One brother fights another. One nation rises up against another. A company keeps making more and more in order to subdue its competitors. A family tries to keep up with the Joneses across the street, not just to have what they have, but out of envy, wanting to have more and better. Do you think it's possible for both a rich person and a poor person to act in envy and self-interest? Of course it is. Selfishness is a facet of human sin that's common to all people. As God says to Cain, sin is always crouching at your door, at the door to our hearts. Likewise, it's possible for richer and poorer to be generous in our love for God and others. To be sure, human generosity always looks different depending on your perspective, depending where you sit. But God, as he does with Cain and Abel, God looks at the heart because God wants us to respond to him in love. Centuries after Cain and Abel, Jesus one day went to the uh, temple with his disciples and they were watching people make public offerings, just like we do here. At a certain time, people would come forward and they would put their money in a basket or a box. But unlike us, they didn't have e-transfer and they didn't have checks. And so people would come and rich people would put a bigger bag of money and uh, people giving less or poorer people would put a smaller bag of money and you could, you could hear the difference. And Jesus' disciples were very impressed when some people came and uh, slung a bag off their shoulders and a big pile of money dropped into the box. But Jesus pointed out a woman who came and brought two little copper coins, two lepta, which are just, the, the NIV says maybe a few pennies. They're less than that. They're fractions of pennies. They're one of the most common coins found by archaeologists today because they were one of the most worthless coins. And so they were often just left on the ground. And Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all of these others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. When you have a lot, 10% is easy to give. It doesn't cost very much. But when you have a little, even a few pennies might be all you have. Our culture's view of money is not God's view of money. Our culture's view of money, in a word, is more. And we get this from Cain. We think that more is always better. More reward than my brother. More money than my competitor. More power than my enemy. It's easy for us to adopt this view in the church as well. And for ministers or other church leaders to put pressure on people, on God's people, whether we're rich or poor, to say, just give more. But let's not forgive 
who we are giving, or let's not forget, excuse me, let's not forget who we are giving to. If we're tithing or giving money to the church, Christians believe that we are actually, first of all, in terms of our priority, we are giving our money to God. And if we're giving our money to God, we need to remember a few things. Two in particular that I want to mention. The first is that God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. God is the king and the ruler over the whole universe. Everything belongs to him already. He has all the power, all the wealth. Everything belongs to him. In Psalm, 40, Psalm 116, the psalmist asks, With what could I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? The answer is very clearly, nothing will ever be enough to repay the Lord for all he has given us. He doesn't need our money or anything else that we have to offer him. He has already given us everything we have and everything we are. And after giving that to all his creatures and all his creation, he still remains glorious and powerful and infinite. Whatever we give to God, he does not owe us in return. If we choose to give to God with the right heart, it can only be out of humble and odd thanks for what God has lavished on us. The second thing we need to remember when we think about giving is that when we give our money and our time to God, it doesn't belong to us anymore. We should care about where we give, where we spend, and how we use our money. But with our AGM coming up, especially the wealthy among us, and especially those who give much to God and to the work of the church, we need to be reminded that we are not stakeholders in God's kingdom. When we give to God and when we give to his church, it's no, it's no longer our money. If we think we are, that our giving entitles us to a tax receipt, that's true in the nation of Canada. But our giving does not entitle us to be stakeholders in the kingdom of God. Our giving does not entitle us in the family of God to vote for what we want or to push in the direction that we prefer. We need to hear God's words of warning to Cain. If you do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, which in Cain's case is working for more for himself, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So what then shall we do? In the simplest of terms, if money is a good tool, We should use our money to benefit those we love. And God desires us to love him first and to love one another second. This is Jesus' instructions to his disciples when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law includes the laws about tithing and giving. Use your money to serve and help and benefit those you love. The Bible pictures God's love and our love as a series of concentric circles. God loves Adam and Eve and he uses them to bless the world. 
God calls Abraham and blesses him and his descendants Israel so that they would be a light to the nations around them. And then the world would be blessed through them. Jesus, when he lives with and loves his disciples, later sends them out. First to Jerusalem, the city, then to Judea, the the province around them, then Samaria, the, the province or the area next door, and then the ends of the earth. If we love God, God's spirit is at work in us. And so by God's love and the spirit's work in us, we love our family and those who are close to us. We love our friends who are a little bit closer, a little bit further. We love our coworkers in our city. We love our more distant connections, others in our world who are suffering God's whole world. When we love others, it's easy to give. We don't give grudgingly, but joyfully to our children, to our parents, to a friend in need. We give good gifts to those we care for. And money can help us do that. As we learn, as we practice, as we experiment with the talents and the gifts and the growing bodies that God has given us, that growing, the Bible calls sanctification. That growing is the journey that God has for us. Not just to grow independently and figure our lives out on our own, but to grow more and more so that our lives are more aligned with God's life. Giving money is one part, albeit one important part of that journey and that growth. God knows that we're quick to forget his commands. God knows that we are quick to forget to love him and forget to love others. That we're quick to fall into sin and to what is bad for us and uh, even worse for others. And so God challenges his people at the end of the Old Testament. I wanted to read this whole chapter of Malachi 3, but uh, for the purposes of time, I'm just going to read a few verses. And they're on the screen uh, behind me as well. This is through the prophet Malachi, God speaks to uh, to his people. He says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? God asks, yet you rob me. And you ask, how are we robbing you? And God responds in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open a floodgate in heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. By the time of Malachi, the law of the tithe was well established. God's people were instructed to give 10% of their income to him, 10% of their crops that were literally held in storehouses, 10% of business income, 10% of new livestock births. The first and the best went to God. Why? Because it all came from him anyway. It all belongs to him anyway. Giving God the first part was intended to be an act of trust, saying and showing that we expect God to provide the rest of what we need as well. And as God says in Malachi, even more in abundance that we can't contain it. But instead, 
The Israelites at the time of Malachi were always holding back, holding on to more themselves than until they could provide for themselves comfortably. And only then would they give to God. They would wait until the end of the year or until the end of the season. And then after all their needs were taken care of, figure out if they wanted to give to God. They had little trust in God, little hope for God, and little thankfulness to God. And they showed it by ignoring God's laws. Yes, his law of tithing, but many of his other laws as well. But that's not where the sermon stops, and that's not where the story stops. I want us to see God's response this morning to people who break his law. You see, the Bible does continue to hold up the example of first fruits, the law of the tithe, just as we give a tithe, as we give our first and our best to God. This is how God says that he responds. Or Paul says that the Holy Spirit is God's first fruit gift to us. In other words, if God has already given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts, then this is not the end and the limit of God's gifts. It's a small deposit. It's a, it's a tithe. It's a first fruits guaranteeing that God will one day give his people a full inheritance, true and intimate relationship with our Father, even the restoration of our bodies. There are so many reasons why we do not or cannot tithe why we do not or cannot give the first that we have to God. But we see again and again in Scripture that regardless of our limits, regardless of our abilities, and regardless of the fact that all of us are sinners and lawbreakers in some way, God is not limited. God is not slowed in his grace and in his giving his gifts to those he loves. Paul reminds us about what Christ did about the whole law, the laws of tithing included, in Romans chapter 8, when he says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law that brings sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And he, God, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in all of us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul concludes this little section by saying those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. That's why we have this sermon series, All the Things God Cares About. Because as God's people, we want our priorities to be shaped and set by what God and his spirit desires. Money is one of many things that show our heart and our attitude toward God. But money is not the only measure. God understands our difficulties he understands our difficult relationships. He understands our different and difficult socioeconomic situations. The Old Testament law calls God's people 
to give a tithe, the first tenth of our income to God. But the law is powerless to bring us closer to God. The law can't actually bring us closer to God. Even if you give 10% of a very big income or a very small income, even if you give more than that, that act doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't win you special favor or a special place or a special role in God's kingdom. You and your money, me and my money, we are just not that powerful. Our money can't bring us true and lasting life in God's kingdom. Just like our lack of money cannot keep us from true and lasting life in God's kingdom. Apart from the Spirit, any number of us might desire to show our goodness to God in some way by holding up our, holding up our abilities, holding up our talents, holding up our giving receipts. Or we might shrink from God in shame because of our difficult situation, because of our lack of strength or energy, because of our poverty. But Christians do not live in our own strength. We don't live apart from the Spirit. We are not slaves to the law. We live with the Spirit and we are slaves to Christ who has accomplished what the law could not accomplish. When you give yourself to Jesus, just exactly as you are right now, you are saying that Jesus is Lord and master of your whole life. Not some percentage of it, not a small percent or a big percent, everything. He's in control of your millions if you have millions. He's in control of your pennies if you have pennies. He's in control of your whole life. And if you have nothing but debt and challenges to your name, then Jesus will take responsibility for those debts and those challenges. He will guide you. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. If we have little, if we have only debt, it's easier to give control of our lives to God because we can see clearly from a human perspective that we have less to lose and more to gain. But woe to the rich person who imagines that compared to God, I have something to lose. Paul reminds us that our righteousness, our good acts, they're like rags compared to God's goodness. All of us stand far short of God's majesty, his power, and his goodness. And he gives it to us, not depending on our ability, not depending on our financial situation, but depending on our hearts and our willingness to accept him as Lord of our lives. As we close this morning, I want to close perhaps with a, what seems like a negative example or a story of warning, in part because this is the kind of story we started with as well. The story of Cain and Abel uh, is not just a story of history as this story is, but also a story of warning. There's a man I knew uh, who worked his whole life in real estate and he made millions, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, I knew him in Colorado and he lived into his 90s and personally enjoyed his wealth very much. He told me often about uh, the trips that he took and the powerful people that he worked with and enjoyed meeting. He had a nice home and everything he wanted from a physical and a financial perspective. But he was a hard man. 
who valued hard work. He made sure that his kids grew up and wanted them to value hard work too. And so he kept all of his money or or the vast majority of his money away from his kids. Even though he had a lot of wealth, he only gave a little bit to his kids, preferring that they would learn to work hard and earn their own money the way that he did. But sadly, the opposite happened. Over a lifetime, his kids became bitter at their dad's tight-fistedness, at the fact that their dad was always too busy for them, making more money somewhere else. They moved away, and they kept their own kids, his grandkids, far away from him. When I knew him in his early 90s, he would have given a lot of money to see those grandkids regularly. But because of his kids' bitterness to him, no amount of money at that point was enough to restore their relationship. This man wanted to use his wealth and his, pres- his wealth and his power to pressure his kids into sharing his values. But instead, he created resentment because he withheld his love and he withheld himself from his kids. Thanks be to God that God is not that way with us. God is the opposite. He doesn't always give us more money. We don't always have as much money as we need or as we think we need. But God is a good father who always gives us more of himself. We would be ungrateful kids if we said to God, we don't want you, we just want your money. We don't want you, we just want your resources. Or as uh, Malachi says, the Israelites say, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain? Thanks be to God that he has given his people so much. We can't outdo him. We can't even begin to repay him. What we can do is say thank you as often and in as many ways as we can. We can say thank you in our work and in our play. We can say thank you with our time and our energy. We can say thank you with our money. How will you bless and thank the Lord with your money for all he has done for you? As we come to God in prayer, I invite you to think about that question, that question from the psalmist. How will I return to God for all that he has given to me? Please pray with me. God, when we come to you, may we not come as resentful children who feel entitled because of what we have and what you have already given us. And God, when we come to you, may we not come as ashamed children who feel we are in some way not worthy of all the vast gifts that you have lavished upon us. Thank you, God, that your love for us is not limited by our situation. That your love does not first call us to change something about ourselves, but instead first welcomes us to the full privileges, rights, and responsibilities of your children, of your sons, who receive a full inheritance, not just the first fruits. 
God, show us, even in the quietness of these moments, show us your goodness to us. If that goodness is financial, may we praise you for it and with it. If that goodness is a family, children, may we praise you and give our children and our family back to you in trust. Wherever we see and find your goodness, God, may we never stop celebrating and thanking and praising you for it. Continue, Lord, to shape our eye, to turn our eyes toward you, to turn the eyes of our hearts and our lives so that we would be more and more shaped by the knowledge and the celebration of what you have given for us and also more and more eager out of thankfulness and love to do the things that you call us to do, trusting that they are good for us too, that they go along and are part of the good gifts that you give us. God, all the praise and glory goes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.